0: Hello everybody, you are listening to Things Observed and I am your host Luke Marshall and today we've got a good episode for you. The heat is turned back on at my house, we've got the unit fixed, it is sunny outside and Everything is going good on my end. I hope that everything is going good on your end and that you are having a swell day. And hopefully this episode will contribute to your swell day, despite the fact that we are going to be talking about some pretty horrendous stuff. So uh, just brace yourself for that. There is going to uh, a content warning. I think this is the first time I've done a content warning, not that this is the first time that it maybe would have been... um, advise that I do a content warning but we are going to be talking about some heinous things throughout this podcast but I'm not going to go into any too gruesome of details but hey when you talk about things that have titles like the rape of Nan King you ought to just be kind of uh, forewarned um, if the you know name of such a historical event didn't forewarn you enough about some of the subject matter That is going to be in today's episode. But we are going to be talking about the Golden Lily, Yamashita's Gold. And today we are going to be using as our primary resource Gold Warriors by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. Gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold. And we are going to be using this book very heavily throughout the series. It is published by Verso Books. And, uh, it's very good, highly recommend it, especially if you want to learn more about the subject matter of what we're going to be talking about in the next few episodes, because we're only going to really be scratching the surface. We're going to hit the, the highlights as it is of, uh, the book, and we'll, as the series goes on, dive into things that are not in the book, but anyhow, um, If you want to get a more in-depth knowledge of the subject and if you want to get more details, um, some interesting stories that are included in the book, highly recommend Gold Warriors by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. But anyhow, let's go back in time to Imperial Japan. And our story today is going to start in 1895, when imperial Japanese terrorists would pose as business agents of Japanese companies, and they would assassinate Korea's queen, queen men. And this would provide plausible deniability and enable the Japanese um, to come up with a pretext for the occupation of Korea, which would result in large-scale plunder, taking all kinds of gold and jewels and uh, artifacts and artwork, and they would really uh, pillage the whole area. And we are just going to kind of skip over some events really quickly in secession before we get into the meat of today's show. But anyways, then Japan would go on to defeat Russia in 1904, and they would annex southern Manchuria, and Japan would work with Chinese warlords and gangsters who were affiliated with Chiang Kai Shek's um, KMT party. I, you know, am probably gonna mispronounce all kinds of things, so forgive me on that. end. But after this they would begin massive opium cultivation in Manchuria and it has been said that in 1937 that Japan was responsible for 90% of the world's illegal drugs. And Manchu Emperor Puyi um, would be turned into an addict, and thousands of opium dens would be up- opened as a subtle form of warfare against the Chinese. So drugs have been being used as a weapon against populations long before the CIA would introduce crack cocaine into the uh, American ghettos and stuff, as it were, and create the crack epidemic. So, um this would be followed this, you know, um occupation of Manchuria and the cultivation of drugs would be followed by unspeakable atrocities such as the previously mentioned rape of Nanking where it is estimated that 350,000 civilians and POWs, even more by some estimates, would be slaughtered in the most brutal ways. Um Possibly imaginable tens and thousands of women and young girls would be raped people would be beheaded and disemboweled just a horrible atrocity and this is just you know two examples of uh, What was going on with the Imperial Japanese as they raped and pillaged their way through the Far East Um, Just to kind of shorten things, because we could do multiple episodes just on all the different countries that they would invade and loot. But Imperial Japan would loot 12 countries of great wealth in the course of 50 years as they went through the Far East. Uh, Banks, gold reserves, museums, private art collections... Even graves were not safe from the greed of the Imperial Japanese army. And the purpose of this looting was twofold, and it was to remove any sense of cultural identity from the Far East, making them easier to subjugate and control while the Japanese continued on their imperialist crusade. And the second reason for this was to finance their military and political goals and to you know, I guess you could say as a third reason, doesn't even need to go, it could go without saying, but I'll say it was to further enrich the Japanese elite. And this operation of pillaging and getting all this gold bullion and treasure and art from um, their escapades was known as Operation Kinno Yuri, or the Golden Lily, named after one of Emperor Hirohito's poems so this systematic looting of asia known as golden lily was not restricted only to the japanese army but would also involve collusion from the japanese underworld and the japanese royal family itself and all of this was sanctioned from the highest levels um, sanctioned by emperor hirohito himself and so golden lily the operation was overseen by hirohito's brother prince chichibu and others like general doihara and top yakuza gangster um kadama yoshio both worked with um drug smugglers in shanghai and manchuria um so yeah we have some um a foretaste of you know what would begin to happen in america where we see this nexus of the highest levels of powers and the army and intelligence services, um, this nexus between them and the drug trade. And so um, Imperial Japan was involved in all kinds of uh, truly despicable stuff, and their dreams of domination of the Far East were beginning to be tested. Once the balance of power began to shift with America's presence in the war after Pearl Harbor, and especially after the Battle of Midway, And in the words of Peggy and Donald Seagrave in Gold Warriors, Japan would never regain the upper hand after the Battle of Midway. So initially the ocean route to Japan was open because America was armed with faulty torpedoes that often missed targets, or they would simply bounce off the hull of Japanese ships. So Chichibu, who was in charge of hiding all this plunder, was also given large ships that the Imperial Japanese would disguise as hospital ships, but in 1943, 43, this access um, through the oceans would come to an end when America solved its torpedo issue, and so the Japanese believed that um, they would retain the Philippines in any post-war agreement that they could foresee, and so that this meant that you know whatever gold was in the Philippines would stay in the Philippines, and any other loot that would be acquired would be would be brought to the Philippines and they would construct large tunnel systems deep deep underground with um, disguised vaults as quickly as possible in order to store and hide this gold these jewels um, you know all the this wealth that they were acquiring as they pillaged the far east and you know this job may not be as difficult and as massive of an of an undertaking as it would sound at first not that it wasn't a massive undertaking because it was and we will get more in depth into that but tunnels already existed in the Philippines from the time of Spanish colonial rule and these tunnels had been expanded during the time of American rule in the region so there were already some tunnels and so what the americans expanded on from the time of spanish colonial rule the japanese would expand on from the time of american rule of the region and a primary concern in building these tunnels was that they would not be found unintentionally whether it be by bombing or by future construction on the site and you know the good old Geneva Con- convention prohibited bombings on schools, hospitals, POW camps, churches, historic monuments, things of that kind. And so these exact locales would often be chosen for the construction of these tunnels and the placement of vaults because they would be safe from you know any kinds of bombing and they would also be safe from from, um, you know, these historic sites would be safe um, from future construction. Um, So they would build the vaults at depths of 90 feet or more to prevent discovery from bombing and build at these historic sites in order to prevent future construction. And the Sea Graves and Gold Warriors claim that these sites, without exception, would bury alive the slave laborers used to construct the tunnels. Um, And so the slave laborers would be sealed inside with all the gold and loot. And Shinto priests would often come and bless the site of the tunnels after their completion in order for the spirits of the dead to watch over and guard the tunnels. And you could say that there were plenty of spirits around for the job because there was plenty of dead buried inside of these tunnels. But anyways, that's a very, very brief overview of what is going on when we are talking about the golden lily in a very brief overview of the imperial crusade that japan was on during this time period as i mentioned earlier 12 countries in 50 years would be looted and so this is where we start our story and so that is just the background that is needed in order for everybody to have an understanding of what exactly it was that was going on during the time period but now we will get into the story of ben and um, i think that this story is very instructive and teaching us a little bit about what was going on with golden lily what the operation looked like and it's also just a very compelling story so if you guys want to learn more about ben hamin hamin story you can check out gold warriors but anyways let's go ahead and get into the story learn a little bit more about golden lily and see what exactly it was that was going on with imperial japan and the looting of the far east at this point in time
1: Yeah. <laughs> shit sound like 007 oh shit. Yeah. 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 Jane yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. gold all in my chain. Gold all in my ring. Gold all in my watch. Don't believe me, just watch, nigga, nigga, nigga. Don't believe me, just watch. Don't believe me, just watch, nigga, nigga, nigga. Don't believe me, just watch. Don't believe me, just watch. Gold all in my chain. Gold all in my range. Gold all in my watch. Don't believe me, just watch. This ain't for no fuck, nigga. You a real nigga, then fuck with me. This one for the hood nigga. Hips the bitches that shop in Linux. Dark skinned, light skinned, Asian and white women. We know about you, don't buy shoes unless they're popular for the hoes, my nigga, that's pussy popping that magic city, got the strong, my nigga, then call cool match that shit with me, Smoking me, my nigga, then don't pass that shit to me, this one for my niggas, and bitches buy that money, got a lot. chest of bread, them bad hoes that uh-huh. I don't fuck with no snitches, so don't tell me who tellin'. Nope. This one for them colleges, them bad hoes that spillin'. Shout out to them freshmen, on Instagram straight flexin'. Pop the molly, I'm sweatin'. Pop the mile, I'm sweatin'. Mama always told me, boy, I count your blessings. In God. So I kept counting them francs. I'm too fly, you know this. Let me give your ass a checklist. One gold watch, two gold chains, six gold rings. It's not Got that? OG joints, them hot socks, no shirt on. I'm stuntin'. Okay. And this song for them fuck niggas who hatin' on you this summer. Talk shit behind your back, but won't say shit in public. Fuck. Gold all in my chain. Gold all in my ring, gold all in my watch Don't believe me, just watch Nigga, 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 don't believe me, just watch Don't believe me, just watch watch. Nigga, 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 don't believe me, just watch Don't believe me, just watch Gold all in my chain, gold all in my ring, gold all in my watch Don't believe me, just watch
0: So Ben Hamin or Ben as we will here on out refer to him as, was born in 1925, and when he was 17, Japan would invade the Philippines. Located in the lowlands of Pangasinan, north of Manila, he found himself directly in the path of the invading Japanese, and looters would torch the house of Ben's family in Pangasinan, And so he would, along with his mother, grandmother, brothers, and sisters flee for Duallo, which was situated in the mountains where Ben's uncle resided. And when Ben was growing up, he would often work with his uncle in the rice paddy fields. And when his family arrived at Ben's uncle's, um his uncle would butcher a pig and feed everyone till they were full which was much needed because during their journey up to Ben's uncle they would only have meager amounts of rice and fermented fish paste to eat so the pig was much needed sustenance for the family and Ben's father was absent on this journey because he had actually been picked up and taken to a POW camp but fortunately, he was released after a few days there, and he would later rejoin with his family. And so Ben's uncle gave his father a parcel of land to farm on, and they would cultivate sugar cane for sugar, rum, and hard candy. And so one day, Ben would go out into the woods, into the jungle, to cut down some dry bamboo for fire, because they were going to make cane juice. And... Um, so he he had grown accustomed to the previous 10 months of japanese occupation but this would all quickly change as he went outside to um, go cut down some dry bamboo and while in the hills by himself japanese soldiers would surround the young ben and they wanted to know how to get to the san antonio barrio And so Ben explained that he couldn't show them without his father's permission. And so Ben would go home with the Japanese soldiers with him. And Ben's uncle would have to convince his father that the safest thing to do was to let Ben show the soldiers their way to the San Antonio Barrio. And one of the men amongst the Japanese soldier was dressed different than the rest of the men. He was dressed in white, and he altogether had a different aura to him. There was something about him that commanded authority, and he was treated with great respect by all the other Japanese soldiers. And all the men referred to this man as Kimsu. So, shortly into the trip towards San Antonio, with Ben showing the men the way... The man in white said he decided that the group should head to the San Fernando, um, to San Fernando instead, where the camp, um, their camp, was located. And Ben once again would say that he would have to ask his father's permission to um, take them to San Fernando. And this familial loyalty impressed Kim Soo. And so on the way to San Fernando, Kim Soo would rep- reprimand two Japanese soldiers who um, were discovered trying to rape a young Filipino woman. And this would, um, he would say that anybody who did this would subsequently be punished by death. So this kind of gives you an idea of, uh, you know, what was going on in the Philippines at this time with the Japanese invading. And so, you know, this is the beginning of Ben's story. He is showing these Japanese soldiers their way around this region that they are unfamiliar with at the age of 17 years old. But now I will read a passage from Gold Warriors. So this passage from Gold Warriors will explain what exactly it was that Ben saw once he arrived with the Japanese soldiers to the San Fernando camp. Kim was in charge of a very large team of officers, hundreds of men, including mining engineers, geologists, architects, chemists, specialists in ceramics, electricians, demolitions experts, and a battalion of soldiers. There were well over a thousand men in the San Fernando camp, whose only job was to move and hide war loot. Ben saw thousands of boxes made of bronze and some of wood which were extremely heavy. It took four, five, six, even eight men to carry each box, using slings made of webbing. He also saw hundreds of completely naked Korean, Chinese, and Filipino slave laborers moving the boxes, which sometimes blindfolded, sometimes not. He knew they were slaves because they had ankle chains and ropes binding their wrists together with just enough play to wield a pick or a shovel. Trucks arrived continually at the San Fernando camp, loaded with these heavy boxes, and after they were unloaded, the men in the trucks were sent away. Then the slaves, or kim own soldiers, put the boxes into tunnels, deep pits, or caverns scattered around the Cagayan Valley. Once Ben saw fil- Filipino soldiers um, bring boxes and trucks and stack them beside a road. After the Filipinos left, Japanese soldiers moved the boxes into a cave. Then the soldiers were ordered to leave, and Chinese slaves carried the boxes out of the cave and put them in a deep pit where they were covered with soil, which was then scattered with flat cobbles typical of this region, and fast-growing papaya plants and bamboo were planted to complete the disguise. Some tunnels Ben saw led into big caverns that were enlarged by Kim Soo's Japanese engineers. In the beginning, Ben had no idea what was happening. He saw little violence, so his life with the Japanese was neither scary nor ominous. He learned that he was to be Kimsu's water boy, cook, servant, and valet, bringing him food, shining his shoes, doing his laundry, looking after his clothes, and keeping his living quarters spotless. Kim Su lived in a proper house in the midst of the camp, not in a tent. And so there we have a little bit of what Ben began to see when he arrived in the San Fernando camp and get a little glimpse into what one of these golden lily operations would look like as they were constructing these vast underground tunnel complexes So for all you tunnel heads because I know that um, in these circles that we do have some tunnel heads People who are fascinated about what goes on in tunnels because oftentimes Tunnels are a sign of susness, whether it be um, in Imperial Japan or in a situation as different as uh, What's the name of the school the Michael Aquino? um, school anyhow tunnels are sus and i think that you guys know that tunnels are sus so anyways back to the topic at hand Um, so after a month of living with the group ben would build up the nerve to ask colonel adachi who would translate for ben because as you guys will remember ben is filipino and he did not speak japanese he would pick up some japanese over time and begin to be able to have conversations with this kimsu but it was often colonel adachi who um would translate for ben and so he would finally muster up the courage to ask this Colonel Adichie um, who Kim Su was. Who was this man in white who seemed to command so much respect and fealty among these men? And he was told that he was a prince. And in a later conversation, Kim Su would, um, who was growing fond of Ben, would confide in the boy that um, Kimsu Murakuzi was a codename and that his real name was Prince Takeda and um, if you guys know who Prince Takeda was he was a cousin of Emperor Hirohito himself so once again um, we can see that this whole operation golden lily was being ran by the royal family itself in conjunction with the japanese army and some underworld elements um and you know imperial japan they uh you know in my opinion they kind of set like a a precedence. Well, not even set a precedence. There's always been, you know, um, a nexus between government officials, intelligence agencies, and uh, the criminal underworld. But they would uh, kind of be ahead in their time when it came to, you know, the nexus between um, the government and drugs and um, using dirty money and creating, you know, kind of like these uh, black budgets for themselves through the loot that they were taking. But, Ben would um, ask if he was the brother of Emperor Hirohito after um, Takeda, you know, would say that uh, he was a prince and Takita would reply that he was only a cousin. So, once again, we will refer to Gold Warriors where Sterling and Peggy Seagrave explain exactly who it was that Prince Takeda is. Prince Takeda was a grandson of Japan's Miji Emperor who had lived from 1852 to 1912. Miji had four surviving daughters by imperial concubines whom he married to four princes. These four princes were extraordinary characters, lifelong cronies. Prince Ketashirakawa Norohisa and his brother Prince Takeda and Prince Asaka and his half-brother Prince Higoshikunu Norahiku, These Princes of the Blood went to school together as boys, attended the same university, served in the army together, shared the same geisha, went overseas together, and partied together as playboys. Two died young, Prince Takeda in 1919 when his only son was 10 years old, and Prince Kitashirokawa in 1923 when he wrapped his man made Bugatti touring car around a giant sycamore tree on the road from Paris to DeVille following a liquid lunch. Thereafter, the two surviving playboy princes, Prince Asaka and Prince Higashikuni, took a special interest in raising young Prince Takita. He also became a favorite of his first cousin, Crown Prince Hirohito, who was nine years older. All male members of the imperial family received a military education. Young Takita was educated first at the Gakushun, or Peer's School, graduated from the Military Academy in 1930, and became a sub-lieutenant in the cavalry, quickly rising to lieutenant. He studied at Army Staff College, became a captain in August 1936, and a major in 1940. In 1942, he went to Saigon as Hirohito's personal liaison to Count Todoruchi, commander-in-chief of Japanese armies in Southeast Asia. Asia, son of General Teratuchi, the Japanese viceroy in Korea who had looted tombs and terrorized civilians. Like other princes, Takita was part of the military elite, whose presence in the field was a constant reminder of the emperor's supreme command. In his capacity as a special emissary of the emperor, Takita became second in command to Prince Chichibu in directing the operations of Golden Lily throughout Asia. Promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, he was listed as a Staff Officer in the Strategic Section of the Operations Division, under the alias Lieutenant Colonel Mayata. Although still officially posted to Saigon, he moved to the Philippines where he took charge of Golden Lily's field operations outside Manila. Prince Chichibu remained in overall command in Manila, and personally oversaw the most important treasure sites in and around the city, but he was often away on trips to Tokyo, Singapore, and Jakarta. Ben saw Chichibu twice in Manila during 1943, when all the princes held a strategy conference. Chichibu, he said, was always referred to by other princes as Chekao, as Prince Takita always was called Kim Soo. So there we get from the Sea Graves an um, overall explanation as to who Takita. was. Was and once again, I would like to apologize, especially for any of you guys who know Japanese, for my absolute butchering of names. And I would also like to apologize to um, you know any potential Filipino listeners about um, my butchering of the names of different locations. So forgive me. I'm just a southern white boy who um, doesn't know how to pronounce the name of different geographical locations and Japanese royalty during the time of Imperial Japan. So forgive me on that end. My intentions are all well-meaning because I am only trying to expose the Imperial Japanese and the ensuing black budgets that will um, be created by the US with this war loot, but I'm getting ahead of myself but anyways all apologies but anyhow back to the story of ben so ben would eventually learn what was in the boxes when he was sent to fetch salt and he would stumble into a room that he was not permitted to be in but when he was seeing all these boxes around he thought hey maybe i can find taquita's salt for him and he would open a box and find that the whole damn box was filled with gold bars and that the entire room was filled with boxes. And so Takita would ask him what he was doing in the room and Ben would answer that he was looking for salt, which luckily amused Takita and Ben was only lightly reprimanded, but um you know, had Ben not been so well liked by Takita, the punishment could have been much more severe. Because uh, you don't really want to cross the Imperial Japanese when you're working as their servant boy. Um, So if any of you guys find yourself back in time in that situation, don't do it. Um, And Ben would continue to see large amounts of war loot arrive. Um, One time for a period of two weeks, he would see basically a constant procession of trucks bringing in loot to one of these tunnel complexes. So, Ben would come to learn that there were 175 sites built, which belonged exclusively to Hirohitu and the royal family, and that Kim Su was tasked with hiding this loot. So, all the sites had a chief engineer, mining expert, architect, experts in mixing and molding ceramics, and demolition experts, and chemist for poisoning the sites for any potential would-be looters or discoverers of the loot. So, Kim Su would come at the end of the development of the structures, and after the loot had been placed in and, um, you know, everything been taken care of with these tunnels, he would take an inventory and oversee the closing of the sites. Allied POWs and slave laborers would be enclosed inside the sites, as mentioned earlier. So, Kimsu would tell Ben that these orders came directly from Emperor Hirohito himself when it came to, um, You know, leaving the slave laborers inside the tunnels, and it would often bring tears to Kim Soo, according to Ben, when he would recount this story to the sea graves. So, in the summer of 1944, it was beginning to look like an allied invasion of the Philippines, or Formosa, was inevitable as fleets of American ships appeared near New Guinea so this is when yamashita tomoyuki would be brought in to replace the former general in command of the philippines in an effort to defend the region from allied encroachment so gold warriors says speaking of yamashita he was a big man bull necked barrel chested head shaved his face in an expressionless mask so he seemed brutal and insensitive in fact, he was a moderate who had opposed the explosive growth of fanatical militarism in Japan. In 1935, when one of the most dangerous fanatics, General Nagata Tetsuzan, was stabbed to death in Tokyo headquarters by Lieutenant Colonel Azawa Saburo, Yamashita stopped the assassin in the hallway, shook his hand vigorously, and thanked him for his courageous act. Because of his extraordinary victory at Singapore earlier in the year, Yamashita became such a public hero in Japan that he was feared and resented by Prime Minister Tojo, who recalled him and salted him away in Manchuria for the bulk of the war. By mid-1944, however, Tojo had been forced out of office and the high command sent General Yamashita directly from Manchuria to Luzon, hoping that this military genius could produce another miracle. He arrived to Manila on October 6, 1944, too late to alter the outcome significantly. Thus, Yamashita became involved with Golden Lily only during the final ten months of the war. When the princes and their helpers were hastily moved, the last truckloads and freight cars of gold bullion and other treasure into the mountains north of Manila, where Yamashita planned to hold out as long as he could. As it happened, Yamashita was a personal friend of Prince Chichibu, who, as a young officer in early 1930s, had served in his regiment in Tokyo. So, there was immediate rapport between them and when they were brought together by circumstance in Manila. Ben saw them greet each other once and told us Yamashita was the only Japanese he ever saw who did not bow first to Chichibu, but instead welcomed him like a long-lost brother. So there we have a little bit of a description from the Sea Graves about who exactly it what, um, Yamashita was and a little bit about his background. So we have this, you know, military genius being brought into the Philippines in order to try and help... Uh, You know save the situation for the Japanese when things were beginning to look desperate and he was only there for the last 10 months of the golden lily um, hiding the loot Operation as it were so in the Battle of the Leyte Gulf in October of 1944 Japan would suffer great losses and MacArthur General MacArthur after this victory was planning to invade Luzon so we have the Americans encroaching And Yamashita would have more than a quarter million men in Luzon, but all he could manage to do was to hold off the Americans from Manila. But, you know, he could only do this for so long. So Yamashita would decide to withdraw and declare the city open so it wouldn't be destroyed for no reason, for no good reason. Um, You know, I guess except for pride, but, you know, that's not really that great of a reason. But Yamashita wasn't in charge of Manila. Instead, that was a pretty radical dude named um, Rear Admiral Iwabuchi Sanji, who was the, um, you know, the Rear Admiral of the Japanese Navy. And unbeknownst to Yamashita, Sanji would uh, reject this order. And Iwabuchi unlisely chose to, uh, not retreat into the mountains, you know, while American planes were controlling the skies, um, you know, and, you know, they could not escape by the seas because of these American planes. That would have been pointless. They would have just been sank any ships, but Iwabuchi commanded his troops to fight to the death. And he, in fact, encouraged his Marines to go out and commit what the Sea Grays would say was the worst atrocity since the rape of Nanking. Iwabuchi's 16,000 men would go from house to house disemboweling men, women, and children. And they would, in the course of their rampage, flatten 80% of the homes in the city. 100,000 Filipinos were slaughtered, you know, beheaded gutted, as well as thousands of Americans, and so, you know, pretty horrendous stuff, but that is just par for the course when it comes to Imperial Japan, when they could not control a population through, you know, bringing in drugs and through propaganda, they would, you know, just go on a rampage. So this would just be one of many rampages that would take place as the Imperial Japanese would, you know, over the course of their uh, reign, go on to kill millions of people. So Ben would find himself in a hut around this time with Kim Soo and his staff, and um, he would see planes flying overhead, and initially he thought that these were um, Japanese planes, but Colonel Adachi informed him that they were American. And a few days after this, um, the Americans returned to bomb the area, and Ben would see Kim-Soo and others praying. So with the Americans quickly closing in on the Japanese, Kim-Soo's demeanor would change. Um, I guess I should start calling him Prince Takeda, since we know that Kim-Soo now is only a code name. So Ben and Prince Takita. Um, would cut the tips of their fingers and they would let the blood drip onto a battle flag in a blood oath. And he was told by Takeda never to mention Prince Chichabu and never to reveal Takita's name and to never reveal the location of any of the war loot that they were stashing there in the Philippines. So the following day, Takita and Ben would go to the Pinkion Bridge and Takeda would have his men bury two large steel boxes filled with 75 kilo bars beneath a large mango tree not far from the river and he would tattoo two blue dots Onto Ben's hand so he would never forget where um, About these two boxes of treasure that were being buried and he would tell him this is what I'm giving you for your service lots and lots of gold okay and uh, Takeda would go on to say that he, Ben, should buy a big ranch with this gold and marry the pretty girl from the village and have a bunch of children with her in order to help run his ranch. So this is the payment that Ben would get for being Takeda's servant boy and valet and what have you. Um, So as we can see, uh, Takeda and Ben have this kind of peculiar relationship with one another given that you know uh one is an imperial japanese prince and the other is a young filipino man um you know not typically thought of as likely allies during this time but takita had a great appreciation for ben and so these boxes that were buried were sprinkled with poison and ben was told to uh pour kerosene onto the boxes and burn off this dust when he returned to collect the gold. And so while the pit was being covered, another Golden Lily team would drive across the bridge, and amongst them was Prince Chichibu, who Ben said was coughing blood into a handkerchief, which is an interesting detail for Ben to recount because it is hard to um, imagine how Ben, who is not you know someone who um, was exactly pouring through uh, books on the Japanese... Uh, Imperial Japanese history after his first hand experience, um, you know, kind of confirms that uh he had some sort of first hand experience because it would be very unlikely that he would know that Chichibu who had come down with tuberculosis. But in order to just, you know, further corroborate his reliability as a witness, I will read from the Sea Graves what they write in Gold Warriors. To corroborate this, in 1998, we gave Ben a blind test with obscure 1930s photographs of many princes, photos that we obtained from the British Library of Oriental Collection. These were photos of the princes in army uniform as they looked on the eve of Pearl Harbor. Although we removed the names from each photo and mingled photographs of ordinary soldiers, Ben instantly identified Prince Takeda, Hirohito's two brothers, Prince Chichibu and Prince Mikasa, and the elder Prince Asaka, who had commanded Japanese armies at the rape of Nanking. Ben said he had spent time with each of them, bringing them food, tea, and cigarettes while they inventory and close treasure sites. Ben Valmores was a rural rice farmer who never left the Philippines and never went beyond grade school. So his instant correct identification of the princes was persuasive. When he came upon our photo of Prince Takita, Ben froze and then began crooning the Japanese folks on Sakura Sakura, or cherry blossoms, which he said Takeda often sang to himself. So, you know, there we have the C grades, you know, talking about just... Ben's reliability as a witness to all of this going on but you know the American troops are encroaching in the mountains and Yamashita would continue to be pushed back and tensions just keep on rising during all of this time and now this brings us to the conclusion of Ben's story when on June 1st All 175 of Golden Lily's chief engineers would meet in the Tunnel 8 conference room located underground in San Fernando, where Takeda's headquarters were located. And Tunnel 8 was one of the larger tunnel complexes in um, the area, and it's right by, um, you know, in the San Fernando area where the base, um, you know, where uh, Takeda was located. So the engineers were, you know, brought down into the headquarters um, in this underground conference room in the tunnel system, and they were drinking sake and shouting bonsai while slave laborers were kept in the cemetery site chamber where guards kept watch of them with machine guns on tripods. And Takeda spent an hour with the engineers before he would take Ben on a tour of the complex where the two admired all of the gold bars and other treasure the Imperial Japanese had amassed on their bloody rampage through the Far East. And they returned to the engineers after this tour, and Takita gave a speech about all the things that they had accomplished for the Emperor. But around midnight, Yamashita would arrive and tell Takita it was time for them to depart and tell Takeda that Ben would have to remain in the tunnel but Takeda would insist that ben was coming with him and that he had personally promised his family that he would return the boy home and while this did not really seem to please yamashita um who would you know stalk off into the night after this um you know probably surmising that it's you know never smart to argue with members of the japanese royal family he would let it go So as they left the complex, Ben would hear a loud explosion, and he thought that a bomb had been deployed from above, and so he would drop to the ground. And when the earth finally quits shaking, he would see Takita crying. He said he had been ordered to do this from the emperor himself. Then he would tell Ben to return home to his family after he gave him a white tunic with the red and gold chrysanthemum patch on the left breast, and he would also give Ben a sword. And after Ben wore this tunic out in the paddy fields, after he returned home, his father would tell him never to wear it again, lest people think that he was a traitor and kill him. And Ben would use the sword to cut stalks in the paddy field, unaware of the blade's value. You know, so this is the end of Ben's story. Well, I guess, you know, Ben would continue to live. So that would, um, you know, mean that Ben had more of a story than that, but for our purposes, this is where we're going to conclude Ben's story. And the relationship between Takeda and Ben is something that um, I find really fascinating and kind of puzzling, and um, especially at the end of the story when uh, Takita sends Ben off to go be with his family instead of having him buried there with the rest of the Japanese and him you know, storing away this gold for Ben. And one has to wonder if Takeda almost believed that by letting Ben go, that he, um, you know, was saving his soul by this one kind act, despite the fact that, you know, hundreds would be not so lucky and the, you know, would die in the tunnel system. Um, some of them his, you know, Takeda's Japanese brethren. But, anyways, this is but one story of someone who saw the Golden Lily operation at work, but most of those involved never got to share their stories, and their stories would be buried with the gold and jewels that rested alongside the many corpses inside the 175 tunnel complexes. While that might be the end of Ben's story, that is by no means the end of the story of Yamashita's gold. So let's continue on with this. So after Yamashita heard the news of Japan's capitulation, excuse me, on September 2nd, 1945, he would approach American lines, and he would present himself and his staff to military police major A. S. Jack Kinworthy, a good American name right there. Yamashita himself would bow deeply and give Kinworthy his sword. And Shortly after, for the first time in American history, the U.S. tried the general of a defeated enemy country for war crimes, but there was many irregularities about the trial. You could say that this was a show trial, if anything, that would ensue against Yamashita. You know, first off, the men conducting the trial against Yamashita in Manila had no legal degrees, and all the evidence against him, according to the Seagraves, was hearsay. And General MacArthur himself and his headquarters would encourage minimal court procedure and the admittance of hearsay evidence. And when Yamashita's defense appealed to the Supreme Court, there would be Not one, but two separate judges who would denounce the conduct of the trial. And as you guys will remember, you know, not saying that Yamashita was a cool dude by any means, but he was kind of a moderate in the context of the imperial Japanese. And this was the first time that a general of an enemy country would be tried as a war criminal like this. Um, So Justice Murphy, one of the two who would denounce the conduct of the trial, would say the petitioner was rushed to trial under an improper charge, given insufficient time to prepare for an adequate defense. And there was no serious attempt to prove that he committed a recognized violation of the laws of war. He was not charged with participating in the acts of atrocity or with ordering or condoning their commission. Not even knowledge of these crimes was attributed to him. And as you guys will remember, um, when we talked about the atrocity in the Philippines, this would be something that was done against Yamashita's orders. So, um, you know, we have to kind of ask ourselves, why is it that Yamashita is being tried for this? But ultimately, death had an appointment with Yamashita, and he would not miss this appointment that came in the form of a noose. And some would say that, you know, MacArthur's insistence on Yamashita's death was due to him making the general look incompetent. But the Sea Graves, and I would say that they argue pretty convincingly that this was because torturing Yamashita to discover where the treasure had been hidden was impossible with his defense attorneys in the way. So what would the Americans do? Well, they would turn to torturing Yamashita's staff instead. Specifically, one of his drivers, Major Kojima Kashi, who had been at yamashita's side since he took his position in the philippines and you know you might be asking yourself well how did the americans know that the japanese were hiding all this treasure in the philippines to begin with well the americans had known for some time that japan was hiding all of this war loot in the philippines because americans who were fighting with filipino guerrillas would actually observe bronze boxes being unloaded off a ship disguised as a hospital ship. And so, you know, we have this strange loot being taken off a ship that's obviously disguised as a hospital ship. And the Sea Graves would actually say that they would identify this ship through intelligence records as the Maru, And the ship had been taking treasure from Singapore to Manila for Prince Chichibu and the Golden lily and this isn't the only instance of americans you know seeing strange cargo being secretively unloaded in the philippines but another instance of this would be when the u.s discovered the existence of war loot um, of the u.s discovering the existence of this war loot was when american troops landed on Leyte and observed convoys of trucks with odd cargo going into the mountains so Japan's secret was out. The cat is out of the bag. And the man who would carry out the torture of Yamashita was Severino Garcia Diaz Santa Romana, which, uh, Pretty cool name, I must say. And he was called Santi by his friends. So good old Santi was a Filipino-American intelligence officer who was enjoying his work given the recent Japanese savagery against Filipinos that had been taking place. You know, things including everything from beheadings to game grapes and, you know, other horrors that are unfathomable to most folk who have it much more cushy. Um, now, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you have it more cushy. You, um, you know, have smaller fish to fry or things to worry about. But anyways, U.S. Navy Warrant Officer John C. Ballinger's men would be the ones to observe both of the movements of loot that we, um, I previously referred to just a second ago. And Ballinger's son, Gene, would actually tell the Sea Graves, This was not nearly as big a secret at the time as the Japanese wanted it to be. They were in a big hurry and made the mistake of not paying attention. Medina's company kicked their ass and blew the tunnel shut. Japs and all. So, you know, we have further confirmation that the secret was out And so Ballinger would pass this information on to American intelligence, specifically CIA precursor, the OSS, you know, Wild Bill Donovans and the good old boys, you know. um, We were once Wall Street, but now we are a, uh, you know, the guys (laughs) who... You know, stage events on the global stage and are, you know, fighting the good fight against communism in the future and all that stuff. You know, all these former Wall Street lawyers and bankers getting into the field of intelligence, you know, precursor to the CIA. They were the good old boys before they were called the CIA. And um, so the OSS had already been monitoring the movement of Axis Gold Bullion. Um, In fact, one instance of the, you know, monitoring of access gold that, you know, wasn't Japanese gold, but good old Nazi gold um, was, um, you know, would actually become the subject of a turf war between the then Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, and the OSF chief in Switzerland, you know him, you love him, um, he'd go on to be CIA director, Alan Dulles, you know. Um, So, you know, long before he'd be, you know, kicked off the Warren Commission, um, not kicked off the Warren Commission, fired by um, JFK and then take his place on the Warren Commission and, um, you know, do all kinds of other fun stuff. We have Alan Dulles, um, you know, fighting with Henry Morgenthau about you know what to do with this Nazi gold and let's just say that Alan Dulles was a little bit more enthusiastic than the reticent Henry Morgenthau um so you know in one case American agents would watch 280 trucks um of Nazi gold these trucks were owned by Swiss firms, and then they were painted with red crosses, you know giving them um, A cover of neutrality and they'd watch these 280 trucks transport Nazi gold from Germany to Portugal a neutral safe he- Haven so you know we already have the access um you know loot in the case of the Nazis you know being closely watched by the OSS we know that they have an interest in this kind of thing um, makes for good black budgets which we'll get much deeper into that but um, you know we're getting ahead of ourselves when it comes to the Nazi gold and you know we'll get more into the Black Eagle Trust for those of you guys who know about that in the future but back to the torture of Major Kojima As the Seagraves write in Gold Warriors, this brutal interrogation of Major Kojima produced results that astounded everyone from General MacArthur all the way up to the White House and became one of the biggest state secrets of the 20th century. Even today, it remains carefully obscured by making all archival records on this topic inaccessible for reasons of national security. It is no exaggeration to say that Santee's results greatly altered America's leverage throughout the world during the Cold War. Man, I get pissed off every time I hear you cannot get that information. That FOIA is going to be declined for reasons of national security. Um, you know, it seems everything that would um, possibly yield juicy information for us parapolitical researchers cannot be given to us for reasons of national security um stuff that doesn't even make sense but anyhow and what the sea graves describe as chance edward lansdale would show up to manila from san francisco and the oss would get involved in the interrogation that santee was carrying out and it is here that we will pick up next week where we continue on our journey into axis gold that will end up becoming um you know this loot will end up becoming a black budget for the cia that will be used to rig elections and install right-wing regimes across the world right wing regime right-wing regimes who are willing to play ball with the u.s and um, that is you know only the beginners beginning of the sinister things that these deep state slush funds will end up being used for. So, make sure to join us on upcoming episodes where we dive deeper into Yamashita's gold. We're really just setting up the story as of the moment, you know. So, we have the imperial Japanese who are doing all these false flag attacks They are getting into the opium trade and, you know, cultivating all kinds of opium in Manchuria, you know, responsible for at the time of 1937, by some accounts, 90% of the world's illicit drug trade. You know, we have them doing all of this chicanery and then we have them looting 12 different countries in the Far East and then we have the secreting off of all of this loot that is called golden lily and we have it being put in you know once they can no longer get all of this loot back to japan we have it being stored in the philippines so hopefully i did a decent job of laying out the beginning of this story so that way we can dive deeper into it and we'll get into edward Lansdale. you know famous cia cold warrior we'll talk a little bit about edward Lansdale. And his uh, relationship to this stolen loot, and we'll also talk about some things that Douglas Valentine talks about, Edward Lansdale, and Operation Phoenix, or no, the Phoenix Program. You know, great book if you haven't checked out uh, the Phoenix Program by Douglas Valentine. I very, very, very highly recommend it. I Think it's instrumental in not only understanding the Vietnam War but the world that we live in today. And so, yeah get ready black budgets rigged elections Um, we're even gonna have the john birch society get involved in this story eventually i mean we have a whole bunch of interesting stuff going on truly fascinating tale that we have here once again gold warriors by sterling and peggy seagrave gold warriors america's secret recovery of Yamashita's gold if you want to learn more about this and get a more in-depth um look into this story than you're going to get from this podcast series. That's where we're getting most of the information from it, but we will dive into some other sources, and we will talk about some other things, aside from, you know, the rigging of elections and stuff like that, that this gold could have possibly been used for. So, hope that you guys enjoyed this episode if you do enjoy this episode and if you've been enjoying other episodes of things observed give it a rating on spotify or apple podcast if you're listening on one of those two um i'm going to put out another podcast next week where we're going to continue looking into the story of yamashida's gold and the black budgets that will be created with this gold um if you don't follow me on Twitter and you would like to follow me on Twitter, it is at ThingObserver. And so you can check out the threads that I put out there. I oftentimes will put up photos and threads related to the podcast that I've been doing recently and I'll occasionally talk about some other stuff on there. You can also message me on there if you want to message me anything. My DMs are open. Anybody can message me and you can say whatever you want. You can say, you rock, you suck you can ask me questions, you can uh, send me damning information on the Clintons and seal my fate as a dead man. You can really do whatever you want in my DMs. They're open to you, dear listener. But hopefully you all enjoyed this episode. Hopefully I did a good job of setting up the story and everything was made perfectly clear. Sometimes when I'm recording these podcasts, I just uh, can't really tell if I'm uh, doing a good job of explaining or not. And sometimes it's only, you know, um, it's hard to look back at what you do in hindsight and judge for yourself. So, once again, DMs are open. If you think I'm an idiot who can't explain anything properly, let me know. But anyways, I love you all. Hope you guys are having a great day. Hope you guys have a great week, a great life, and just, you know... Be happy. Not everything in the world is, you know, CIA black budgets, you know, used to uh, rig elections and fund mercenaries in foreign countries who are working for right-wing regimes or, you know, maybe kill Kennedy or pull a 9-11, you know, you need a good old black budget for stuff like that, but that isn't everything that there is. There's also friends and family and dogs. Speaking of dogs, Josie, Josie. Get over here. You have anything to say to the people? She's feeling sheepish. She does not want to get on the mic. So you guys will not be hearing from my co-host who is oddly silent today. But anyways, love y'all. Take care. I will talk with y'all soon. (laughs)
2: Fire. <laughs> Fires twisting in the sky, We're reaching twisted cars on every side. And no place to run, no place to hide. No turning back on a suicide ride. Come through my sides And sprouting cups of mushrooms Like a world's surreal But this dream won't ever, ever end And time seems like it'll never begin Thirty seconds in a one-way ride Thirty seconds and a blasted high Thirty seconds and a one-way ride Thirty seconds and a blasted high Thirty seconds over Tokyo 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 Thirty seconds over, Tokyo. 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 30 seconds over, Tokyo. 30 seconds over Tokyo.